Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montessi with James Begley. Mark Knowles is the captain of Australia's men's hockey team, the Kookaburras, who were gold medal favourites at the Olympics. After an enormous build-up, the Kookaburras crashed out in the quarterfinals. As a leader, Mark has been dealing with the fallout. What went wrong? What would he change? And what next? For Mark, Olympic failure is even more bitter because he's tasted ultimate success, winning gold in 2004. A junior team member at the time, Mark admits he was naive about it all. Only now does he realise the significance of what was achieved. For a semi-professional sportsman, much more than a medal is on the line. If you don't succeed, your team doesn't get government funding. And at 250 bucks per week, the hockey player pay packet is already meagre. And Mark talks about how he juggles cash flow, including Indian Premier League contracts, sponsorships and a coaching business. Mark is a true champion, not only a gold medalist, but a World Player of the Year and World Cup winner, but still a humble lad from Rockhampton. This episode is brought to you by Pickstar, the place to connect with sports stars and high-profile people such as Mark for any commercial engagement or experience you can imagine. Guest speakers, ambassadors, just about anything. Pickstar works fast with any budget. Register your opportunity at pickstar.com.au. Enjoy our chat with Mark Knowles. Mark Knowles, welcome to Rooster Radio. Thanks very much, guys. You sit here as captain of the Australian Kookaburras, one of Australia's um, premium sporting brands. Growing up as a kid, was it always on the cards for you that you were going to end up in this position? Oh, I would would like to um, say that. I think I grew up in Rockhampton in central Queensland. Mum and dad both played hockey. Uh, Mum for Tasmania, dad for Queensland, older brother, older sister, younger sister. Um, Basically in a country town in Queensland it was rugby league um, or hockey. There was a bit of cricket as well but um, I just loved it. Uh, The outdoors, we used to to go to hockey at 7.30 in the morning. I used to play on the grass fields until 12, 12.30. Mum and dad would take me back to grandma and granddad's house. We'd have a cream bun and a sausage roll normally for lunch on Saturdays. (laughs) Yep, always together, every weekend. (laughs) And um, then we'd go back for seniors. Mum and dad would coach the second division, then play in the first, and it would be dark, and they would be dancing and drinking, and we'd be sitting under tables. Sounds amazing. What is one of your first memories uh, of actually playing? Um, well, I think my first memory is probably more of watching dad. Um, I remember watching my uncle, Reg, who was a bit of a thug. Uh, everyone knows that, standing at the back, just uh, hitting people on the grass fields in the, <laughs> in the first division final and dad being pretty quick and fit and fast running around people. So probably the memories of dad and my uncle um, overshadow my own. Um, but I think probably my first main memory was when I was 12, I made my first state team and I came to Adelaide, my first ever um, national titles. So that's probably my first real memory as a young kid. Was it always the dream for you to represent your country or were you, you know, like your typical kid wanting to be a fireman or a police officer? Or uh, No, I, I did want to play hockey for Australia. I reckon from probably about... Um, 13 or 14 years old where I started to become one of the good players in a country area. I started to um, practice my hockey a lot more. Mum and Dad got a tennis court put in down on our property with AstroTurf field so we could play hockey. Um, 
and I just really got into it. I just loved it, um, and I did want to play for Australia always. Um, I didn't think it would happen, probably until my parents took me to uh, the Sydney Olympics in 2000. That was my uh, light bulb mo- moment, I suppose, when I was 16. I thought, holy, I want to... I want to do this. and You can swear on Rooster. Oh, can you? Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, holy shit, I want to do this. <laughs> Going around the Sydney Olympic Village um, and watching the hockey and the other sports. So that was my moment where I was 16. I was a good player, um, but I said I want to do it properly. And unfortunately for me and some other parents listening, maybe my schoolwork um, and the application to that suffered a little bit, but my desire or my love or something for hockey went through the roof. Between those ages of sort of 12 to, to 16 through, you know, through to your early 20s, was the Australian Hockey Roo brand as strong as it was sort of post the Olympics? Do you remember having superstars that you idolised like young players would have now? Um, I think there's a little more access to them now um, with social media and the other tournaments, but there definitely was. Um, 94, I was 10. Uh, The World Cup was in Sydney, and that was a massive tournament. Um, We went down, my family went down to that tournament, had a Jay Stacey poster on our wall and um, all of the things that I would hope kids want to have of myself or Jamie Dwyer or Eddie Ockenden or some of the stars of the team now. Um, so it was there, um, but I was also a country-based kid where um, the ability to get to games or to tournaments or National League stuff was much harder. We're seven hours' drive from Brisbane, seven or eight hours' drive from Townsville, and they were the two National Hockey League teams at the time. So it was more around um, holidays if we went there and there were games on or a big tournament, a Champions Trophy in Adelaide in 97. We flew here to watch this. Um, World Cup 94 watched that Sydney Olympics so they were the times where I uh, idolised people and you know you would stand on the fence for three hours waiting for a shirt or a pair of socks or something that I think now is nothing but I always find myself thinking that was me and make sure you give that kid the socks or they're (laughs) sweaty and they're wet but it doesn't matter (laughs) so at what point did it become your job or your profession um, well, I made the decision to try and make hockey a profession um, at the end of 2006. I'd played at the Olympics in 2004, um, a little bit of luck, but an unbelievable tournament to win the first ever gold medal for hockey um, for the men. I then played at the Junior World Cup, which is the under-21 tournament in 2005, the year after the Olympics. Were you like a big dog? Did you just sort of strut around, you no, know, telling people to pick up your socks and no, I definitely, polish your boots I and have your gold medal just sort of proudly <laughs> displayed around your neck? No, I didn't. But I certainly, as a 21-year-old, got a little bit more attention because I was the only Olympian from that tournament. Um, out of that came unbelievable opportunities. So we played at the Junior World Cup in Rotterdam in Holland, uh, which is the biggest hockey club in the world, eight turfs could not believe where we were and that year straight away at the junior world cup they offered me a contract to play in the professional league in holland i was 21 i said i can't the commonwealth games was in melbourne in march 2006 then the world cup was in germany at the end of 2006 and i said okay i'll sign to play at the end of 2006 so that's when i chose i think that was my moment 
But it seems some people would probably find that a bit strange that um, you've won gold and then you and then you think, oh yeah, I might actually turn this into a into something now, into a job. Well, it was very fast. It was probably a little bit too early um, for me. And now, uh, having played for the last. 12 or 13 years, I don't think I understood the significance of that moment for hockey and for a player. Um, I made my debut at the end of January in 2004. Five and a half months later, I was an Olympic gold medalist with 36 games. Um, Our coaches say you would never play at the Olympics before you've got 50 games experience. And I won an Olympic gold medal in my 36th game. Now, we're going to unpack, I guess, those incredible moments, but one of the things that we're really interested in is this idea of, of, of the business of being semi-pro. So most people see you front up every four years for an Olympic campaign, but in between, you've got a livelihood, you've got to pay your bills, and really you don't get a massive amount of financial support. So how does all of this fit together? Yeah, it's a good question. It's one of the biggest challenges for males and female hockey players in Australia, probably in the world, but definitely in Australia, is trying to juggle um, being semi-pro and making money in different areas. Um, At the moment, our squad, or in the past, our squad of 30 national players is broken up into thirds, I reckon. There's about a third of players who try and use hockey as a profession, either through... European contracts, Indian contracts, sponsorship in Australia and Hockey Australia or government payments. There's about a third who study um, to to better themselves in, um, in that side of their life and there's about a third who work either part or semi um, or full-time. So I've chosen to make hockey my profession through um, trying to be a better player, working... Um, in the hockey field and that come from my coaching business that I love which is coaching kids that are 10 to 18 years old a little bit of money from sponsorship so from my hockey sticks from my shoes um, a little bit of money from the government and Hockey Australia which is all metal metal incentive based and then money from Hockey India League or playing in Europe Um, so they were the kind of the streams that I've tried to tap into to give people some perspective, you start the year and, and, and I'm assuming you, uh, your wife hasn't worked for, for a little while. You've yep. got a young family. Can you give us some indicative numbers of, of how you try and make this work? And, and if you don't want to be too specific, you can just use some sort of general examples. No, yeah, that- like what, what would you get from the government or from, from the AIS yeah, so the government funding's our big, what, what we class as our big money um, item, and that's about $25,000 for the year if we're the number one team in the world. So that's per player. That's, um, in hockey terms, that's good. We need that money, and that's in two payments, half in January, half in June normally. Um, the problem with the funding, or not the problem, but the biggest reason why maybe we have been successful Maybe not, but I think it's, uh, it is a big reflection is that we need that money. So if we don't come in the top four, we get no money from the government, um, which makes you really work hard. It's made our program um, be better. It's tried to be more professional, and it's hard without the funding. Um, but certainly for the, for the ladies, the Hockey Roos program, after having a couple of lean Olympic Games and tournaments, they've really struggled to get back up. Yeah. Mm. 
So you've got that. Yep. Then, then, and we were using you as a bit of a case study here, and I would imagine you'd be at the upper end. Yeah. So you can imagine then what it's like for people sort of below you, but you've got the funding from the government. Then you piece together some, some stints in India. Yeah, and the Indian, uh, the Hockey India League's uh, very, very big for our sports. Four years in now, it's based purely on the IPL of cricket. There's franchises. What type of contracts are we talking for the IPL? Because everyone understands the cricket. But, yeah. But what does a hockey player get paid? In your uh, I think the uh, the cricket is $4.5 million salary cap. The hockey's per team. Per team. Uh, the hockey's 700000 So out of the 700000 compulsory for each franchise to pick... 12 Indian players and eight foreigners and they can spend their money however they like. They're 700,000. Um, so and what would a, 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 great, um, a great player sort of get back in club land if, if they're uh, the major sort of marquee player? In India? Yeah. Um, between sixty and 100,000 US yep. for the seven weeks. Big money, isn't it, compared to what... For hockey, it's yeah. unbelievable money, yeah. So that's why there's a couple of really good things about our team or our players we've been at the top so you people always want you when you're successful so quite a lot of there's 23 Australians playing in the league divide that by six teams there's a lot there's four five six players at each franchise um there's money there which allows us to um make hockey a bit more of a profession so we get our we get paid say 50,000 US dollars for the six weeks in January and February that allows us to train a little bit more during the days or work a little bit more or longer hours here or there because we've been paid at the start of the year but it's also still hard Um, some guys then go and play in Europe as well as hockey India League some guys come home with families so it's really a bit of a juggling act and everybody does it slightly differently. Yeah, so on that, on a, and this is a really practical question, but how are you managing your cash flow? Because you've got bits here coming in, bits there. How do you do it? It's extremely difficult. Uh, my wife is a is an accountant, or she was an accountant before she's done her interior design Strategic. degree, but she's very much onto the budgeting and stuff. Uh, we have to be really careful because everything um, is all one-off payments. As I said, we get two payments in the year from the government. We get $250 a week from Hockey Australia. That's our only income that we can rely on, and that doesn't get you far uh, with three kids, 250 a week. Um, sponsorship is once per year, so it's just a contract payment for the year, um, and that might be a small base payment with some incentives for winning a medal. So it's tough. Um, and then the Hockey India League is you get a lump sum of payment in March <laughs> that you have to go the whole year with, and it's good money, especially for someone like myself who's, I think, done a lot of hard work to earn this money, but you don't get paid much from March till December. What sorts of sacrifices um, would you as a family you know, have had to have made in order for you to sustain your career? Oh, I don't think there's been many sacrifices. I think we've been pretty lucky, but um, probably the seeing family is a big one. Uh, we're both, as we said, from Rockhampton, Kel and myself. Both of our parents are still in Rockhampton. We only get back for about eight days at Christmas every year. So for Kel and for myself, our friends, that's probably one of the biggest ones. We, I moved to Perth when I was 18, uh, so that's a long time ago. Um, to be away from friends and most of our family uh, for a long period of time is very hard. Um, 
Not many other sacrifices. I think we try and um, lead a pretty good life that is within the boundaries of what we can afford. I think that's the biggest thing with us. We rent at the moment in Perth. We live within our means. We know that there's not a constant stream of income coming in, so you have to be quite careful with it. Um, But I think also we try and show the kids that you don't have to be going away here or there or or getting presents or toys every week to to have fun. We do, you know, for me and for my five-year-old, the best fun he has is wanting to kick it through the footy goals at the moment. And <laughs> he's uh, he's JK and I'm Nick Nat <laughs> from the Eagles. And if uh, if Luca, his little two-year-old brother, comes, he's Jack Darling. And if, if Kel comes, then she's the coach. And then Daniel Rich comes in somewhere from Brisbane. And, yeah, because yeah, nice. we've got the Brisbane connection. So... Um, Yeah, that's the most fun for a five-year-old and that's how we try and live. One of the other interesting aspects of this semi-professional space is, I guess, management and advisory. So I think I understand that not many hockey players would have a a dedicated manager and yet he's still doing significant contracts. So, um, you know, Indian Premier League and other, um, you know, European contracts. How, How does that balance how to you're smirking mark how do you guys get the right advice uh it's a really good question it's something we're trying to work through more at the moment with uh advice from people who either know i think the the thing for hockey is because it's been so so semi-professional even far worse or far smaller than what it is at the moment people just aren't used to it and i'm talking to a range of different athletes and people at the moment about management and Guys, you know, there's a couple of 25-year-old guys earning $100,000 in six weeks in India um, and they're doing it all themselves and you have to be very careful with that. Um, guys doing their European contracts all themselves and, you know, you've got to work at health insurance and you've got to get flights and you've got to get gym membership and you need a car and there's things that I think we're probably um, still hockey in Australia is treating the game like it's semi-professional and I think we need to move a little bit and that's probably where there's a group of players who want some change and I think Hockey Australia is really on board with the movement. To a a union or an association uh, We've got a players association that started in um, March this year so that's the first step Um, but also I think the game just trying to if you just want to be semi-professional you'll always just be semi-professional. If you want to be professional or even a little more professional, we have to take some of these steps. And, yeah, Hockey Australia is doing a good job. We're getting some more advice, but the players are the ones who have to buy in a little bit. And you say to some guys, you're getting a European contract for $30,000. I want to be your manager and I'll take three or 4000 <laughs> No chance. <laughs> no chance. Um, so that's quite, that's quite funny, but certainly it needs to progress. And I think the Players Association is the start. Um, but if the Hockey India League keeps going and if the European contracts keep going, um, yeah, the players will need to get into it a little bit more. Now, take us back because you, you're somewhat apologetic for playing, I think it was you said, 34 games before earning a gold medal. And it seems to me athletes can't win. Some athletes will go their whole life without luck and they'll never win a gold medal, they'll never win a premiership. And then when it comes to them early, they're almost apologetic about it. Um, Can you describe uh, the way that you reflect now on that magical moment of of winning a gold medal? 
Yeah, um, oh, it was unbelievable. Just very quickly, my story, I made the national team for the first time in um, March 2003 when I, was, I hadn't even turned 19. First day I arrived in Perth to start training with the national team, I broke my ankle. I was out for four months, so 16 weeks later, in the middle of June or July, I was allowed to train my first session. So I'd been watching my idols, Brent Livermore and Bevan George and Matthew Wells and Jamie and some of these people, being 19 years old on the push on the bike or in the in the gym. And my first session back, Friday morning, I remember it clear as day, I was allowed to train the last 30 minutes and I stepped on a guy's stick and broke my ankle again. Oh. So I was living away from my family, away from my comfort zone, um, I was living, uh, sharing a room with Matthew Wells and I didn't play or train one single day in 2003 as a 19 year old. And I thought, well, there goes even the slightest of my Olympic dreams. I thought I was but somewhere between 20 and 28 in Australia. Um, Barry Dancer and the coaching staff decided to give all of the senior players in the national team a rest for the first tournament of 2004, the Aslan Shah to not make the year too long. So he took a development team. I was one of those guys. We somehow won the tournament over in Malaysia. And I don't know, I just, um, I had this youthful, uh, youthful exuberance, Barry used to call it. He said, Nolsey, I, I just want you to just, just keep going, you know. All of the boys are telling me they're tired and they can't do it and you're running after training and then you're riding your bike home and then you're coming to training early. This is what we love. We want you to drive these guys. And I just got a little bit more uh, comfortable with it. I got more into it. The players started to see that I could do it and um, a little bit of luck, you talked about luck, came my way. So the captain of the team, Paul Godoyne, one of the greatest kookaburras of all time, he had a really bad... degenerative knee injury um and he was the captain at the time he was the starting right half rob hammond one of my good mates from queensland was the second right half and i was the third right defender and the third central defender so Gooders got injured the month before the olympics and missed out on the olympics um rob moved forward one spot to starting right half i moved forward one spot to start or to second in line and my olympic dream came true probably even four years earlier I said to my parents I really want to go to the Olympics in Beijing I'll be 24 years old I'll be ready at 24 um so I was 20 I just turned 20 in in Athens and it was definitely a little bit uh sooner than I thought and as you said I'll probably look back on it now I didn't play very much it was back in the day where you hardly rotated at all the bench was the bench uh, the young guys were the young guys. We used to pick up the bibs and <laughs> wash the uniforms and <laughs> polish guys' shoes and stuff like that. But I loved it. I was This was my dream. Um, so now after um, doing three Olympics myself, I look back and I um, think, you know, how massive a moment that was for hockey. Um, were you a bit naive about it? Definitely naive, and I reckon I was naive for probably about four, five years. I didn't, I don't think I truly understood how hard it was. A little bit, uh, it hit me a little bit in 2006, two years later, when we lost the World Cup final. I played a much stronger role. I was a starting player, um, so we lost the World Cup final, and that really hurt. And I thought, oh, I don't, want, I don't want this feeling, but. You know, the Olympics were coming in Beijing. And then when we lost the semi-final in Beijing, when we just threw it away, we capitulated under the pressure. We 
we totally failed that tournament. Um, that's when it really hurt. I was 24 and I thought I knew absolutely everything in, that was to know in hockey and life. And um, I thought to myself, far out, how amazing was four years ago? What did I just do for the last four years? Because now it's real and it's hard and I was a senior player. And, and then four years later, I said, yeah, I never want that feeling again. That was after Beijing and four years later in London, we did the exact same thing and you just think to yourself, okay, now um, Athens in 2004 seems such a long time ago. Um, so, yeah, I was a little bit naive. I think in general probably quite a few of the players were. Um, but... Um, now, when I look back, I think this year, even though we we did um, significantly worse than what we thought we would have, um, I took a lot better steps in preparing guys for what it was like, uh, the importance of it, not wasting a moment. And for that reason, I think my leadership in the last four years has gotten a lot better. Um, I was one of the captains in London in 2012, but I concentrated a lot on myself and just play your best and you'll be fine and... Don't worry about anyone else. Leadership in moments of well, perceived or real failure. So you guys crash out of Rio. Yeah. What are you saying to the guys in the locker room in the last, you know, like two hours after the game or an hour or, or as soon as you walk in, like, what's the feeling like? Uh, there wasn't much said at all. Um, was after, there a mo- like after Rio? We had a debrief the next morning. Was the first time we could maybe, I think, get into people's heads what had just happened. How do you describe the feel of the change rooms after that uh, game? Like dejected, um, miserable. It was a hard place to be in, and you have such a different range in all sports. You have such a different range of people. You have guys who break their hockey sticks and smash the smash the walls. Then you have guys who just sit there and think about what happened. Then you have guys who want to talk to each other about what they did wrong. Then you have guys who want to blame. And all of those things, I think, are normal. That's part of being in a big sports team, but there was very little said. But I think for context, most people wouldn't understand the pain and how much it means because you've got this four-year build-up, your funding is performance-based. Like It Im- actually impacts lives. It does. And I think also um, pressure played a part uh, without doubt in the performance this year. So I think so You mean the fact that you guys were expectation, potentially expectation favourites. So I think yeah. a lot of... Um, there was a large amount of guys who... Um, were thinking they've let people down and you know the first things that people talked about that night was oh did you read this or oh what did your parents say so it was like we'd let each other or our families and hockey in Australia down and when you really buy into a process like large part of our squad now coaching staff and everyone did when you really buy in you do think that you've let people down um and and there's always your family will say you didn't let us down and but you do feel that and there was it was really dejected it was a feeling of failure like we've let let people down and personally how did how did you process it um, uh, what was your response as a as a leader and with with that level of responsibility yeah so my message to the guys was very much about um, you know that we let ourselves down we didn't do what we wanted to 
Um, but the biggest thing I tried to get across to people was that we can't allow this to go for two or three or four years. I said, you know, we've, and it's pretty awesome. Our, our, um, what we've done the last eight years, we've played over 25 finals significantly important games that are either for funding, World Cup, semi-finals, tournaments that we've only lost twice in over 25 finals and that's the Olympic semi in London and the Olympic quarterfinal in Rio and we've won every other final for eight years. So what our team's been able to do is amazing but you always are only looking at the last little thing. Um, so I just said to the guys that from my perspective, it was just about trying to get back up and we know that we have to, we have to win or, or come in the top three at the World League tournament in July next year in London or we don't make the World Cup. And yeah, you can be devastated and I'm, I'm devastated. I'm shattered at what happened and um, a lot of hard work, but I also don't want this to last for four or six or eight or ten years. Part of that debriefing process, I'd imagine it's a bit like a trauma it's like an accident it's like um you know without dramatizing it too much what steps are in place for athletes and this is probably across the board you know do we put in as much emphasis on the debriefing process regardless of what happens post an olympic performance or is it kind of like that's it done everyone goes their separate ways and we just hope people kind of get over it no there's definitely a debriefing process we um that starts from Hockey Australia, talking to the coaches, talking to the support staff. So we have physical, uh, physio, medical, nutrition, things like that about our programming. Uh, then goes down a little bit to the leadership. So leadership group about how the team performed, what was the feeling, why would suddenly something like this happen. And then there's a review for the players. So we'll go back. Um, the first four weeks are really about your own time. So there's been very little communication from anyone. Um, it's about yeah, a little bit of the grieving process and I don't like to put sport that seriously but it's a little bit of that process for about four weeks um, and now we're back into tournament mode. It's amazing how the world just moves. We start our National Hockey League on Thursday next week. We play for our states. From there you have to play well because you want to make the national squad for 2017. We start training the week after. We've got a Four Nations tournament in Melbourne with India, Malaysia and New Zealand. We go to New Zealand for a, a Trans-Tasman series and then we play India in a Australia-India test series at the end of November, December. So the world is, on the hockey world, just continually moves and then we go to India for seven weeks in January and February. So, As part of your review process and your debriefing, when you reflect, do you go, oh, look, I knew something wasn't right or I could have changed this, I could have done that? Um, or is that a sort of a bit of a trap that you tried not to fall into? I think some people will do that. There'll be a lot of, oh, there's always a group of people who will know that they didn't do enough, um, whether that's in your own feeling or whether that's from the coaches, you could have done more. There's a group of people who probably understand themselves through experience or um, pre-tournament editions. Uh, Some people have been through this before, so they'll know I'll deal a lot differently to this than I did in Beijing where I wanted the world to end. I wanted to not play hockey for six months. Uh, and then London was a bit different because I had a young family. I went to Europe. So I'll deal differently now because of my experience. Um, but I think the aim is for most people or a large group to get back on track. And I think we, we always talk about the collective mass 
uh, you want you want a, a large mass of people back on track, and that's the challenge when you have a group of guys who retire. You have a group of guys who are over in Europe now until May next year. You have a group of people who may not be may or may not be selected in the new squad. You have a group of people who want to go and live elsewhere. Um, we might have a new coach. We might have a we will have a new high performance director of hockey. So I think the challenge for us all is to just try and get back together. And whenever that is, probably at the start of October at the training when the training starts, it's about getting as many people back on track as possible and we know that what we do most of the time is very good um but in a time like this you have to convince a couple of people who don't think that to get back on board and i think that's the challenge for coaches leaders Mm. uh, at the moment is it a pattern winning winning games but then losing i guess the crucial the perceived crucial one yeah i think so um for a couple of reasons um i think because it's it is semi-professional in australia we go through three years before the olympics and we work all day and we train at night or we train at five in the morning and we go to work or we go to study go to uni or we go to our family or whatever it's very much a mate's mate you know have some fun and we go out and we play tournaments because you love hockey you're getting minimal amount of money but you're doing it because you love it and it's fun you get away from your wife or your girlfriend for a couple of weeks in europe um you know like you go away with the boys it's awesome we we lead a pretty cool life for a large part of the year then in the olympic year maybe we just put a bit too much into it um maybe it just gets a bit heavy for some people and I think the um, the unpredictability of how people will um, cope with that is one, and I think also the generation change. There's you know the young people are different; they want different things in their lives, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we change everything in the Olympic year. We're not allowed to work. We're not allowed to study. Um, we train from nine thirty till twelve, and from two thirty till four every day. And that's not all on field training, that's psych, that's video meetings. But instead of one video meeting a week for the three years, we do three two-hour sessions a week. And that's what we're looking at at the moment. Is it just too much? Seems to me um, of a bit of a, a dilemma then for the players. We want a professional existence. And yet what you're actually saying is the year in which you're truly professional you lose the camaraderie in the sense of fun. Yeah, it is, I think. And we tried to make it more um, – we tried to make it more fun. We tried to say, guys, this is amazing. We're full-time athletes for, for this six months. How cool is this? You don't have to work. But I wonder if it's what we all – or what people want. And there's some people who really want it. For me, I grew up in the 2004 era where it was all about – doing more and hard work and the guys all worked every day on the tools as laborers and they were like yes the olympic year finally i don't have to build a house in the hot perth sun or i'm not a, <laughs> i'm not a welder anymore or whatever so the olympic year was the getaway for them i feel like maybe now the olympic year is it's sucking yeah it's dreading um and that's it's, it's kind of difficult though like with the like other players conditioned for it because as you said it's um you know this desire to be professional but you can't really just flick a switch either you can't go for three years 
doing this semi-pro thing and then flick a switch, everyone's professional, just like that. Yeah, I know, and that's, I think, one of the challenges that hockey's facing is that they we do want to make it more professional, but it's hard just to... You, it's hard to work your life for three years and then just suddenly not be allowed to work. And, and we've got guys who are trying to do a little bit of work and you say, oh, but when can I work, you know, this week? Oh, you can work for 1 to 1.45 and then we've got a meeting. Oh, but what, what am I going to get done in that time? Or you can work from 9 till 10.30 and then we've got gym or something. And so it's a real balancing act for hockey and we need to be careful because we don't want young guys who are good players to be quitting hockey at 30 years old because they want to get a career or they want to go and do something else but we also don't want to be making people come to hockey that's not what we play sport for I grew up in the country because I loved it I wanted to be with my mates and it's a it is a really interesting space because I think and I'm not sure if you've talked to people who are full-time athletes but there is a loss of fun there is a loss of enjoyment it becomes your job and there is a perception when you then look at athletes who have a better balance you wish that you could have that spirit and then there are those who just work tooth and nail to get a tiny amount of money and all those athletes would love is to be paid really well for what they do and yet the trade-off is that you lose that sense of fun. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's very true and that's what we, that's what we have. We do have a, a sense of fun around our program. It's very, um, you know, when you come for two or three hours a day, there's a desire to get better and you say, oh, yeah, okay, so I'll go for four and a half hours today because I have to do gym or I have an individual session. It's still a lot of fun. You're around your mates in good weather. Um, but on the other side of it, you know, the high-performance training program, our Olympic full-time program is what makes us be able to get better. But I think they're looking, we're looking at the moment is, does it make us better? So what are your thoughts on the funding and the structure and how things are currently um, uh, set up versus where you think they should be? And just remember, there are thousands of people listening to our podcast. Yeah, so definitely. Yeah. You can I, broadcast your message here. I think the funding's a very interesting one. And um, all of the talk after Rio was we're giving too much money to underperforming sports. And uh, if we take it away from hockey, which is a, maybe a $4 million a year program, we'll give it to someone else. And that's okay, but there's nobody else who did any good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's there's your your strategy (laughs) yeah um it's unfortunate but all of the team um well you know it was a it was a really it was a it was an underperforming olympics for team australia and i'm part of that and i can say it because it was the swimmers and you did you get a sense of that as the olympics are rolling on yeah definitely yeah it uh they got more and more momentum as we started to not do as well as we could and do you speak about it like, or is this, un, everyone kind of knows when you walk around the village, but you don't really want to talk about it too much. Yeah, definitely you don't. And I think because it's individual athletes um, and team sports, we kind of, we think to ourselves, let's concentrate on our job. And it doesn't matter if someone didn't do that well, because we're the best team in the world. And then we start losing a couple of games and we're like, oh, what's the basketballers doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, um, oh, it's an interesting one, the funding. We need funding, you know. If you look at the GB model, um, if you look at what they did in London and then now, 
the funding and how it's done, it's different. They get different amounts of funding from different areas, but still athletes need funding, however it is, to be better. And that's training, that's all of the resources with physio and massage and stuff. We do need that funding to be able to live and be better. The model of metal incentive is... um, is a tough one because if you're on the edge, for example, the hockey roos women who are third, fourth, fifth, sixth in the world, somewhere there, if they don't win the tournament every year, which is very hard to do, you can't just go from sixth to winning. It takes time. But how do you get to being up there? That's the challenge. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure about the medal incentive system, um, but certainly the government's been great. They've been great, you know, help for us and especially for a sport like hockey, we need funding support from the government so because there is a thought from some of the more individual based pursuits that oh well, the cost for one gold medal you know four million dollars versus uh you know a, a, yeah a, a walker or a sailor or um it, it it is a little sad isn't it that we end up having this conversation hmm. you know a dollars and cents conversation about something which is incredibly important to our 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 landscape but i think it's also normal after performance um problems and if i look back to 2004 for example every gold medalist for australia got twenty thousand dollars so ian thorpe won five gold medals in athens he got a hundred thousand dollars we won one gold medal team australia and we divided twenty thousand dollars between 16 players what does that equal? $1,320 or something <laughs> each. I spent that in the week after in Athens. <laughs> Just on beer. Yeah, you know, yeah. like it, that's where you think to yourself, the gold medal for hockey in team sport, mm. that was a significant moment. Mm. That, was a, that was a changing moment for sport in Australia. Finally, the Kookaburras have won a gold medal and everybody was talking about Team Australia, the hockey men's team. Finally, they're not... The bridesmaids anymore and okay the women didn't do any good this time but finally the men have done well and I think to myself well that gold medal that was worth as much you know as one or two of Ian Thorpe's individual medals so it just seems the funding just needs to be a bit more tailored and strategic rather than just a a pro former yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's true and how you do it I'm not really uh, I'm not really up with all of that but I would always say and we got asked i got asked a lot about this after the performance in rio um having to sit at the front of the media conferences after a poor poor performance and talk uh you know with the aoc and stuff about funding and the australian government is that we do need the funding and it's played a massive role in us being world champions in 2010 world champions in 2014 won five commonwealth games gold medals in a row you know, it's uh, it's a big thing funding from the government. So one tournament shouldn't change too much. But I think certainly um, after performances, either good or bad, you need to review everything. Now, before we get on to rapid fire, um, I'd like. I've still to... got a couple more questions uh, in the bank, by the way. Before you hurry us up. Well, that's just you got little... somewhere to be, do you? That no, I don't. That's okay. just a little cue, maybe then for. for well, yourself. go on now. Go on, mate. What do you want? Um, just cramping my style here. Uh, Rick Charlesworth. <laughs> polarizing figure i mean achieved a huge amount um seems to everywhere he goes there seems to be a headline um can you give us an insight into some of the reasons as to why he's had so much success and and his style 
Yeah, he's pretty amazing, obviously. To, um, he would have gone to five Olympics without the boycott. Um, as, a, as a coach? As an athlete. As, no, an, as athlete. an athlete. Five Olympics he would have played at. So he went to four and boycotted one. Chef, was he played cricket? Yeah, he played cricket for Western Australia, opened the batting, would have played for Australia, he tells us. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a, an assistant uh, AFL coach? Yeah, he was point, the uh, high-performance high performance, director or yep. something at Frio. Yep. Um, he was a politician for 10 years. I know that he was a high-performance um, coach for New Zealand cricket there cricket. for a period of time. High-performance director of Indian hockey. Um, Coach men and women's Yeah, gold medalist at 96 and 2000 for the women And seems to get results everywhere he goes He does and he's very, um, very, very strong on his message And he puts a lot of belief in the players Um, When he came along, he said, I'm changing hockey, that's it He brought in the unlimited rotations He said, I want to make the game faster I want to have a, a larger group of good players So instead of you just sitting on the bench 20 minutes and then going in and filling in for Nolsey, you're going to be in. So whether you play one game for Australia or 365 or 70 like Jamie Dwyer, we all play the same amount of minutes. So he said that will make us a better team. Um, But I think the biggest thing that I loved with Rick and um, what he always got across to people was he gave you a great belief in your ability if you work hard, but also the team, even if you don't think the team can do it he would always give a message far out we can do this and it puts I think the players especially in the if I categorize from say player eight to player 16 in a team it gave them a massive sense of belief that maybe they didn't have before either I'm not good enough we're not good enough he made people believe that his message was right and he changed hockey in the world, definitely in men's hockey in 2009 when he took over. Why is it that his style also seems to clash? Uh, Well, because he's very, very opinionated. Uh, He's very, very strong. So we used to always say that that we had a coaching staff of four players and we'd say he would sit around the table and he'd say, okay, guys, let's select our team. All right, you all give me your teams and then I'll pick my own. (laughs) (laughs) That was what we always thought about Rick. So... Um, he's definitely very strong on his, on his opinion. And that comes from being successful. I think he's, uh, he's gained a lot of respect out of what he's been able to do. Um, but he also, um, doesn't mind, um, yeah, a strong, uh, a strong word or two. And that came out after Rio about the female, rugby union team you know that's not a deserving gold medal or something he said and I don't even know if he believes <laughs> I don't even know if he believes that's true but those kind of things he likes to rattle the cage a bit. he does he likes to rattle the cage and I think um yeah people people just love what he's been able to do and kind of the person with all of these different bow uh, strings to his bow um how you can be so successful in such a large different Uh, such a large amount of fields. He's a doctor. Yeah, we talked about the cricket, politician, hockey. That's unheard of in sport. To perhaps uh, unpack a little bit further your own leadership style, uh, there was a Rooster Radio episode that we did a number of months ago where where James ran a little little leadership session and um, put the call out to our listeners about um, submitting their own mission statement and, and purpose. And we were inundated 
with responses. In fact, they're still coming in now. I'm just looking at my email on this. This was months ago and they're still coming in. But one of them, Nolsey, was from, from you. Um, I've just got it in front of me. Your mission statement, number one, inspire, leave the shirt in a better place, be a role model. Number two, grow the team mentality, provide platforms. Number three, be the best I can possibly be, work rate, discipline, lifestyle. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about that and how you came to this, um, these, these three key points? Yeah, I was driving. I remember the day I was driving out to Meriden to do some talks in schools and I was listening to the podcast at that time and I thought I've got to send something in here mm. because I think it's valuable for me, not only for people who are listening, but for me um, as a person to write things down. I got some good good advice from... <laughs> Good advice from one important figure <laughs> at a time who said write things down. And uh, I think for me, um, definitely after some of the disappointments and after feeling um, like I had gone very individual for a small part of my career through 2006 to 2009, I put that category in the middle, um, not learning uh, not growing phase I said to myself that I didn't want that anymore and I think a few things changed that um, family getting married and having kids I got a different perspective on life about what was important um, seeing and looking back and being a little bit real with myself about um, not growing and not helping people like I should have through that time. So that's an important one for me about the team mentality. I think everything, and I would hope that most guys in our team would say that, but everything for me is about the group. I don't care about individual stuff. I don't care if you don't do a running session or if you don't go to gym on time. But the idea for me is to have the team growing and most of the time it's getting a large amount of people on side doing the right thing and I think that will help others buy into the process. Leaving the shirt in a better place is something I learnt or our team um, learnt from the All Blacks. Um, they talk a lot about leaving the jersey in a better place and they have a no dickheads policy and we don't copy, but I think you would be crazy to be in a high-performing team and not look at other high-performing teams. And I love uh, reading about and looking into other programs. So the All Blacks are a team that I've enjoyed reading and learning about and they talk about leaving the jersey in a better place and for me that's just about the role model stuff um, it's about um, leading a good lifestyle it's about showing the kids who are young when I do my coaching clinics about the person who I am but also they can be um, it's about showing my teammates the right direction or a direction that I think is right or beneficial for everyone so they're things I'm really passionate about. The hockey stuff, I love hockey. I think I'm a good player. I work very, very hard um, to make my ability come true. That's what I like to think. Um, so I think the hockey stuff is easy um, and some of the other stuff you have to work on, but it's also something that I enjoy, I like. I love being a role model. If I just wanted to play hockey and stuff around, I don't think that would be as much fun or as enjoyable for me. So... There are a couple that are important to me and there will be others as your life moves on, uh, things will grow and you know now leadership would come in there for me about how do I get a bigger bunch of players to be leaders in the Kookaburras team because in one or two or four years my time is done um, and you need people not to take four years to step into those roles, you need people rolling through all the time so that will, uh, that will evolve but there are a couple for me. 
Um, and just for our listeners who might not have picked up on some of that gold from James, that was episode 28 if you want to go back and, and listen in. But um, I know that you're keen to move on to rapid fire bags, but I guess, Nolsey, having come out of Rio, where are you at in terms of your career? What are you thinking about? Um, are you thinking about your next move beyond hockey? Where are you at in that regard? Yeah, very much. Uh, I'm 32 now. I, uh, my, I reckon I'm looking in two areas at the moment. I've For the last two years, I've made a conscious effort to think about life after hockey. So putting things in place to make me uh, a better person, but also to make my family's life easier because once my hockey income finishes I have to live Mm. somehow Um, so that's a big that's a big focus for me Um, and that's through um, business working with other athletes um, that's working on some ambassador roles um, some sponsorship things that I want to try and help myself out with that I think I'm good at Um, and I think that comes from uh, the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast April 2018 is a massive draw card for me to play in the Commonwealth Games in Australia. After Melbourne in 2006, I think it's something that would be very enjoyable, um, but I think also allows me to um, help myself in that in that other space through some of that promotion. Then the World Cup at the end of 2018 is a um, something that I still want to do. I, um, as I said before, I love hockey. I still think I'm a good player. Um, you know, very good, can be better. Um, so I want to still play well for Australia. Um, so that's where I'm moving at the moment. I've set myself a complete goal to play for Australia at least until the end of 2018. So there's not, oh, I might go until July next year or if I still enjoy it in October, I'll have a go. I think that's a bit that's a bit silly for someone who's 32. You've got to set a, a, a significant goal. So 2018 is where I'm driven um, still to succeed in the team. Um, and then, yeah, life after keeps moving. Uh, my family and I have decided to relocate back to Queensland. Both of our families are from there. I've uh, been in Perth for 14 years. Uh, three kids under five. Um, parents getting a little older you know it's harder for them to travel so the move back to Brisbane to the the Queensland Academy of Sport I think for me hopefully will help my longevity it'll help me freshen up my mind and different training group and a different coach and things like that which I'm really looking forward to so that's the end of the year for me Um, but it also allows me to do some of those external things that when you're living in the high performance Perth bubble, in some ways you don't get to do those things because, oh, I don't want to miss a meeting or if I'm not doing something extra. Um, So I think that will allow me a little freshness in my life and I hope that's a good thing. And that's the message from Hockey Australia for me is we think this is really good for you and we don't love our captain not being in Perth. Um, especially after what happened a month ago. However, we made this decision in April. But also I'm a big believer where there's a vacuum, someone has to, and step always up. does step up. Yeah. So it, the, the indirect things might be that actually someone yeah. um, sort of takes the reins in Perth. And, and it gives them more opportunity to. They're yeah. not, they don't feel like they're being either held back or stood on top of by someone else. So I think that that's a real positive, that the coaching staff, whoever that is, but at the moment it's Graham Reid and that male probably will continue he's really keen for that next generation to step into this space 
Fantastic. Well, um, rapid fire, rap, as you know, this is the highlight of the episode. Um, and, and I'm going to kick off. So the... You get a bit closer to the mic. You're a bit sort of off in the distance. He's complaining if I'm too close. He's complaining oh, if I'm too geez. far away. Um, the, the sports person in another sport that you most admire. Michael Voss. I always wanted to be a Brisbane Lions player in the 2001, 2002, 2003 era. Um, Vossi signed me a poster in 2004, said, good luck in the uh, Olympics in Athens, have the courage to succeed. And I went straight out and got courage to succeed tattooed on my wrist. You're ribs. kidding. Yep. Because I just love Vossi. Does he Vossi. know that? I don't know. He's probably heard this. He, he might have heard the story before, but certainly when I uh, go back to Brisbane, you know, hopefully somewhere along the lines there of the Brisbane connection, I might be able to say thanks for that awesome poster I've still got Maybe in my house. Maybe you could get then the tattoo of his signature just underneath <laughs> the phrase. Maybe, Whatever yeah. Vossi says to you, you have, have to, to get, get tattooed, tattooed on yeah. you. No, I just loved his uh, combat. I love the yeah. aggression. I love the just get out there and do it. And that was that was how I grew up. That was my dad. That was the leaders in the kookaburras at the time it was just go out and just do more have a crack your meditation practice uh at nights most pretty much every night on tour i'm a person who thinks hockey i think sport i th- think about being better i think team and i find it hard to shut down especially at night time so for me it's normally 10 to 15 minute uh relaxation or muscle uh muscle retention or muscle recovery uh, meditation, but I love it on tour. I never do it at home because I'm chasing three kids and I'm normally pretty done by about 10 o'clock. Is it an app that you use? Yeah, it's an app, yeah. Uh, One of the podcast, the Rooster Radio podcast that stands out the most? Oh, I've loved a few. Uh, Vintelopa and... Uh, oh, do, you, do you just want to briefly touch on the... Apparently now you're a wine man. You <laughs> I am, before, yeah. Because of that episode. <laughs> because of that and what, episode. And what have you taken away from it? I've taken away to not buy wine under $30. <laughs> but for me, on a budget, not buy wine over $33. <laughs> so, so I have a very limited... Uh, but why is it that you enjoyed that one? Oh, uh, I just... I don't know. I just like something different. I do like uh, wine and I just love the whole small business, doing something that you loved. Um, He talked about, you know, getting away from the norm and he just wanted to do it. And then, you know, the labels are cool and I've kind of just bought into that a little bit. So that was really good. Um, Bickley, Mark Bickley, I love that whole yeah, again, the kind of the Vossi era of sport and how he's now gone away from coaching and how he talked about wanting to do other things and so that was interesting and i don't know that's a pretty a good that's other. pretty yeah, good pretty, pretty good summary yeah other than rooster radio the other favorite podcast that you would listen to um yeah probably um matt cook the meditation podcast and i also um listen to I've just got a new phone. I was, try- I was trying to get on my podcast, but they're not on this new phone. Um, so the meditation podcast is good. Um, Rooster Radio is my favourite, especially on tour yeah, in yeah, India. Yeah, that's all we want to Stuff like that. So I don't think there's many more. I listen to a couple of other sports ones. Through, you don't need any more, mate, Through America and things like that. But yeah. no, they were the main ones. Good. Um, one of the books that's been a big impact on you. Yeah, um, my favourite book probably without doubt I've read it probably three times it's called Luck by Ed Smith he's a cricket writer a very very 
powerful sports writer um, in the UK. Um, oh, it's just an unbelievable book. He talks all about different areas of sport, Olympics, um, life, just talks about the different ways that yeah, luck plays a part in life and it's just a fantastic read. The international team that you would probably have the most camaraderie with and then the international team that you guys seem to have the most conflict with? Comrade in hockey? Yeah. Uh, probably New Zealand are our, um, oh, my mates. I played in Europe for five years with three of the, the top New Zealand players. I've been to their weddings over in New Zealand. Our families are friends. Girl, uh, Kel and the girls are friends. So they're probably my best mates. Um, the team that we um, struggle with at the moment um, is probably Belgium, probably because they're a team who wants to be like us. They've... Are they just in your face? and Very much. They, they just love playing against Australia and, and we love it. We want teams to, to get to their best to play against us. That should make us better. But they're a team who um, have been growing and growing and every time they play or they get around the Kookaburras, you can see they just grow and they get better. And, and um, well, they beat us in Rio. They won Olympic silver medal. They were very close to gold. So maybe it changes now and we chase them. One of the uglier things that you might have seen on a hockey pitch, and you can think back to your, you know, your country days. Uh, well, ugly, oh, two ugly things. One, uh, Commonwealth Games gold medal match, Melbourne 2006. Uh, a Pakistani player just lost control and hit Rob Hammond with his stick, got a red card, so he got sent off for the game. That was ugly for our sport. I hate seeing that. And that's not Pakistan or India or Malaysia or Australia or New Zealand. That's just hockey not being nice. And the other ugly thing that happened very quickly is when I was 10 years old, one of my first memories of Jamie Dwyer, my brother-in-law, probably the one of the greatest players ever for Australia. Uh, he was 15, playing on the grass fields in Rocky. My brother was the coach. I was 10, I was watching, and he said, mate, we've got not enough players, could you play? Yeah, of course, I'm 10 years old, I'm pretty cool. We played against Jamie, we lost 30 nil, <laughs> and he scored 25 goals. <laughs> so that was ugly in terms of playing hockey. <laughs> uh, so I was 10, Jamie was 15, and uh, yeah, people laugh at that story because we're now brother-in-law and we played 15 years for Australia together, but he scored 25 goals in one game. And how did that <laughs> conversation go uh, where you began to blur the lines between <laughs> being teammates to potentially uh, becoming a brother-in-law? Yeah, it was... Uh, do you want to, and do you want to just explain that? Oh, 2006, um, Kel and myself got together. Um, oh, it took a little bit of um, it took a little bit of courage. It took a little bit of um, yeah, nice uh, medicine that you have late <laughs> at nights on Christmas night or a Boxing Day or something like that. But uh, he said. Yeah, you're a nice guy. He said, if my sister can be with anyone, I wanted to be with a really good guy. And yeah, okay, as long as you treat her well. And that was about all. And we didn't talk about it again until we got married (laughs) four years later. (laughs) You've done a lot of travel with your hockey. What's the hardest or ugliest trip or tour type incident that you've had to deal with? Had a couple uh, getting stuck in... Gatwick Airport for eight hours after flying to London, then having to go on the bus, then having to fly from there to Spain. That was pretty bad. A couple around India have been pretty shoddy with uh, three-wheeled buses and uh, cows and donkeys and stuff on the buses. Um, 
But most on, of it on the buses. Oh, just yeah, get on the wrong bus or uh, traveling to and from different areas in India with a HIL franchise or someone like that. Not everything's as glamorous in sporting teams <laughs> as we think. Um, but most of our travel's pretty good. Um, the European trips are long. The trip to Rio was long, probably hit me the hardest or most of our guys the hardest in terms of jet lag. It was uh, 11 hours time difference from Perth. Probably took us seven, eight, nine days to be feeling reasonable. And that's different. We go to London, we think three days is the cutoff, four days we'll start to feel good again. So that was weird not being able to sleep and just feeling a bit off. But most of our travel's pretty good and we, we get ready for that. You know, we're there a week, we were there 14 days before Rio. We're there normally about eight days before a tournament in Europe. So not too bad. So my last question is going to then look to the future for hockey for our national team. If you had to anoint the next captain um, without putting too much pressure on the situation, uh, maybe you can have two. Who, who would you put on the shortlist? How long am I allowed to be captain for? <laughs> no, you've got a year left. Okay. I'm just letting you know. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, but whether it happens tomorrow or in four years' time, who do you think has got the capability to be the next Australian captain? Oh, there's a couple of good ones. If you're looking for someone um, straight away with experience, quality, um, respect from teammates, you've got someone like Eddie Ockenden. He's played 280 games. He's 29 or 30 years old. He's ready. He's been a co-captain before he's been in the leadership group he just needs to improve his um like complete team stuff he's very very good at what he does um but he's working more on dragging people along so he's probably one that's right there and then you've got a couple of really good younger players that have uh, come out of the junior world cup in 2000 and 13 or 14, good players, Matthew Dawson, uh, Josh Belts is a 21-year-old, he's in the Junior World Cup this year, um, Aaron Zalewski, they're in that 23 to 27-year-old uh, year old bracket and I reckon there's a couple of really good guys there who um, either bring strong leadership and how they are on the field or how they conduct themselves or have potential. So I think someone like Dawson, uh, he's 23 years old, probably played about 60 games, uh, easily in our top three or four players in Rio. And <laughs> that wasn't hard because <laughs> <laughs> there weren't many in that bracket, but he was fantastic how he, how he held himself. So he's a guy I really like. My last question is um, we brought you into the rooster coop here in Adelaide, uh, our office. We, we flew you in. I mean, this is how a professional our podcast is getting. And we flew you in just to be on this. Yeah, we flew you, you in. It's unbelievable. got me an Uber. This is just service. Yeah, 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 it's, just how, it's how we roll at Rooster Radio. But <laughs> what? There's a lineup of business people, yeah. executives, yeah. and sports mm. champions downstairs. <laughs> what, what was your immediate, I guess, reaction to the office and the space? Uh, it was pretty good. There's a lovely coffee from downstairs. The streets were fantastic. It's a nice office with some exposed uh, wires and <laughs> concrete ceiling. Probably needs a touch-up of paint. You've got a little bit of paper, uh, paper scattered with some notes and stuff around. It's not bad. The view leaves a little to be desired. Maybe we get some nice uh, mural or some artwork yeah. or something on that wall, but... He's an optimist. I reckon we're we're doing all right here. I'll come back again for how I've been treated. (laughs) Well, Mark, um, thank you firstly for typifying what I would call that sort of older school Australian 
athlete of, you know, hard work, you know, you dig in, you, you know, you've got that determination. Um, and secondly, thanks for fulfilling your second lifelong dream behind having a family and that is to be on Rooster Radio. So we really appreciate making the time to come and have a chat with us. Thanks very much. I'm 32 and I've finally achieved it. So Bucket I'll, list I'll tick done. That Bucket one, list. Tick that one off. Thanks very much for having me, guys. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our chat with Mark Knowles. If you have an event or opportunity and want to connect with Mark or another athlete, visit pickstar.com.au. For more information about hockey coaching with Mark, visit oneandninecoaching.com. That's the numeral one and the numeral nine. For more on Rooster Radio, including past episodes and contact info, visit roosterradio.biz. Listener.